It's good to be together. It's good to, uh, to be in 1 Corinthians with us this morning, and um, I'm excited for what God's going to speak to us this morning. I've uh, been really, really, really um, impacted by this book already as I've been just spending a lot of time in it, and uh, trust that the Lord's going to be speaking to us this morning. So I don't know if any of you paid attention or were watching uh, with rapt attention, but this last Monday night was the federal election uh, English leaders debate. Anyone watch it? Yeah. All right, so okay. I, uh, I was here teaching, and then uh, I will admit I went home and I watched a, the football game. So I did watch clips of it after, but uh, yeah, I'll be honest about my priorities. I, I, I have no desire to talk about politics this morning either, so that's not where I'm going. But I took... <laughs> yes... I know. I took note of one part of the debate um, that would seem totally normal to the majority of our nation, and yet when I watched it, I thought, this is deeply, deeply disturbing. Near, near the end of the debate, there was this yell-off, I'll call it, between all the leaders. So they're all like trying to get a word in edgewise, you know, typical Canadian leaders debate, and they're all yelling at one another. And it was all, somehow it had started about abortion and what, who believed what and where your position was. And there was a bunch of accusations being thrown around. And all of a sudden, the leader of the NDP, Jagmeet Singh, he proclaimed, he said, a man has no position in a discussion on a woman's right to choose. And he just like, he laid down the hammer. And the statement was greeted with wild applause by the audience. There was actually no applause even allowed in the debate. It was the only time there was applause like that when it had to do with abortion. Now, I want to consider the bigger picture of all of this for us because it reveals a belief that permeates our society. When we speak about a woman's right to choose, we are speaking about the murder of children in the womb. That, that never gets talked about. It's just, it's used with very flowerly language to talk about murder in the thousands and millions. And, and of course, it goes against God's word. But this, what we saw there in that debate is perver pervasive worldly wisdom that is just widely accepted across our almost across our entire nation. If, if you speak against a woman's right to choose in any public place, in any public setting, you'll not only be vilified, you'll be publicly denounced as a horrible human being. If certain people would hear what I'm saying right now, I would be cast as, that is a horrible, horrible human being, what he's saying. So our series in 1 Corinthians brings us to the last part of chapter 1, which brings up what Paul refers to here in the text as worldly wisdom and its pervasive and toxic danger to our relationship with Christ. So the vision for this series is to equip us with biblical clarity to combat the confusion of our culture that is embraced and celebrated as progressive and even as inherently good. And, and as the church... We're not immune to the effects of this dramatic shift in culture that we're seeing, that we're in the midst of. There, there is a clear and present danger 
right now to the church, of being formed more by the norms of culture than being formed by the truth of God's word. And so we're in great need of being equipped with biblical truth to bring clarity in our lives, helping us to follow the way of Jesus and seeking renewal in our lives, seeking renewal in our culture. You know, the, and the renewing work of God has always been and will always be about the increase of his presence. I talked about this a little bit last week, but the increase of God's presence, that is at the core of what renewal is. One day it's going to permeate in this new heavens and this new earth that's coming, it's promised. But right now, right now as we are here, God desires to bring more and more and more of his presence in our lives and to bring renewal in every part of our lives, putting God's truth into practice in our lives. It's, that's central to all of this. And so my desire is that seeking biblical clarity in our lives amidst the insanity of this confusion in culture will lead to an incredible work of renewal in our lives. There will be a move happening in our hearts, in our minds, that's going to flow into our lives, in our church, and beyond as a result of God's presence flooding into our lives. Because it's not meant to just stay here. It's not meant to stay here. It's meant to flow outward from us. This work of renewal is God wanting to bring renewal in us here and then out. More and more and more and more and more. And it will never, like I could, ne- I could just keep saying more of Jesus. Just more and more and more of Jesus. He is central to all of this. So in 1 Corinthians 1.17, in response to the, the individualism that was ripping apart the Corinthian church, talked about that last week, Paul says, for Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And that that sets the course for where Paul goes next and for this morning that really presents a choice for all of us. And the choice is worldly wisdom or God's power. For Paul, the importance of God's power at work in the lives of his people was of crucial, crucial importance. And anything that would hinder, restrict, or stop the power of the cross in the lives of the people. Paul, his, his, his whole sort of framework here is it needs to be transformed. Anything that would hinder that. And so part of the deception in our culture, the wisdom of our age, if you will, is the belief that we can mix in an array of various belief systems like into whatever suits us. And all you have to do is talk to people for a little bit and you'll see this is happening. Just this kind of hodgepodge. We're almost like we're making our own homemade soup. Like a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Oh, I like a pinch of that. That sounds good. Oh, I'll, I'll just take this and I'll add it in. Oh, that looks good. That, and, we just, and we mix it into this homemade pot of soup and this becomes our belief system. And this is not just out there. We are all in danger of this. And unless you're grounded, unless you're rooted in the word of God, we will actually begin to stir in all sorts of deception into our lives. There will be things that look good and we'll pull and go, that that looks good. 
not realizing that there's things that are in complete opposition to what is written in Scripture. And so, knowing that we probably all hunger for this, how do we live in God's power? How do you live in God's power? How do you see the work of God's power in your life? That's, that's a really important question. And so I want to give us three focuses for our lives this morning that I think will serve as catalysts to help us live in God's power. So let's, let's read the text this morning. This is 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18 to 31. It'll be on the screen behind me if you don't have a Bible with you. Verse 18. So Paul is, he's continuing here where he says, I don't want to preach in words of eloquent wisdom lest the cross be emptied of its power. So then he goes on. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe or the teacher? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written... Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Amen. It's a good word. So the first way that we live in God's power, looking at this text, is reject the wisdom of the world. We're we're experiencing an age of political correctness and an explosion of what we might call liberal views that we've never seen before in our culture. There is wisdom of this age that will be widely accepted and applauded. And those of us who find ourselves opposing that will have to face very tough choices. Already that's happening, but it's, it's increasing. There is very, very tough choices to live according to Scripture. Much of of what is being presented in culture is presented as eloquent wisdom that Paul talks about. It's, It's presented in very, very attractive packages, but it will compromise the truth and the power of the gospel. And and there's this pull, if you will, to to kind of just simply like get in line with culture. Just just get in line. Like 
Just, just adjust. Just, just a little bit here. Just come into this stream. It's easier here. That, that is already here. That will continue to increase. This is why I'm, I'm so thankful that I can remind myself of these verses. God is not known through the wisdom of this world. This wisdom might look impressive. It might produce great impact. It might bring accolades to individuals. But it cannot satisfy the hunger and the need of the hungry, of the soul, sorry, with the soul with the forgiveness and the healing that it longs for. It can't provide that. And while Paul, he's, he's clearly presenting a picture here of alternative choices that we choose to seek and follow in these verses, he's actually addressing this to the church that was being duped. He's addressing it to a group of people that were starting to be duped by the culture. Paul's quoting there of Isaiah 20, sorry, Isaiah 29, 14 in verse 19. It's significant. Because those words were written by Isaiah in response to what he had said in the previous verse. Isaiah 29, 13, it speaks of people who draw near to me with their mouths. They honor me with their words while their hearts are far from me. Basically, their words don't match their actions. And, and Isaiah says, because of that, God is going to deal with the deception of the supposed wisdom. That's the very verse that Paul is quoting. The promise in Isaiah 29, 15, so the very next verse, says that God is going to do amazing, wonderful things in the people. Wonder upon wonder, it says in Isaiah. But first he's got to expose the deception of this self-proclaimed wisdom that the people are walking in. That's what Paul's going back to. So Paul, he's highlighting this issue for God's people. He's highlighting this issue in the church. Those who would be carried away, those who would be influenced by the deceptive wisdom of the world. It was the presence of this in Corinth that alarmed Paul. And so, where we, where we find ourselves, having an acute awareness of this is paramount if we're going to follow the way of Jesus and if we're going to share him with others, to know where we are. We would likely, I think, I think we probably would all realize that we're living in a post-Christian culture. Yes? Probably would say that, yeah, we're, we're living in a post-Christian Sorry. But, see, we, we might not understand what the implications of this post-Christian culture are. This, what Paul's writing here is not ultimately the world against the church. That's, that's not what he's doing here with this worldly wisdom. The world's wisdom will always, always, always reject the foolishness of the gospel. That's what he's saying. All, if you look all throughout history, that what the world proclaims as wise always, always rejects the way of Jesus. 
what Paul's doing here is he's saying this is about danger to us. This is about in a post-Christian world that we would find ourselves in. This is about the danger to us, what we believe, what drives our lives, and what will keep us from making Jesus known to others. The stuff that will just our lives will get wrapped up in. And so where we find ourselves, having an acute awareness of it is really, really important. So sociologists, they speak of, of three kind of distinct um, phases of culture, if you will. First, first culture is pre-Christian culture. So that's what the Roman Empire was. Hadn't received Christianity yet. Christianity was right at the, at the beginnings. It would be, um, you know, current Islamic nations would be a first uh, culture. So they haven't, actually the gospel hasn't gone forth in those kind of nations. Second culture is credo culture. So that would be Christian cultures, Islamic cultures right now. They would, like, they would consider themselves a second culture as well. Um, Judaism, that would be another. So these are monotheistic. One, they, they believe in one God. That would be a credo culture. Third culture is one that moves past second culture. It's a post-culture. And the thing about third cultures is it will always, always define itself against the second culture. It doesn't just move on to a new. It actually sets itself up to oppose what came before it. And so a post-Christian culture does that. It defines itself against what came before. So this is why if we sense like there's so much anti-Christian sediment sort of around, you're not off base. That is part of what it means to be a post-Christian culture. We haven't just moved on. This is now a reaction to what's come before. And we are now thoroughly, thoroughly third culture in the West. It's, it's not even in question anymore where we're at. We are thoroughly post-Christian. And yet, here's the thing. In many ways, our culture has been shaped by Judeo-Christian values. So the underpinnings, the foundation of our culture has been set on Judeo-Christian values in our laws and in many other things. Doesn't, okay, that doesn't mean we were ever a Christian nation, though. I'm not, we weren't actually ever a Christian nation. We were founded on its principles. That's a, a discussion for another time. But our culture, the point is our culture has been hijacked and perverted so that the values that we have in our culture, we think they're human values, like human rights, equality, peace. We think these are generally just big kind of human values that we, we celebrate. That we see them as almost humanistic. They actually are Christian values. They started as Christian values. And yet, because of our society, we've rejected Christianity. We have this convoluted society. We want the fruits of Christianity, but we do not want Jesus as Lord. That is where we find ourselves, in a really odd place. We don't want Jesus, but we want all the benefits. And somehow we're going to try and create this. So what are the implications of this post-Christian culture? And there's many. We're going to touch on a lot throughout the series. There's a lot of implications for this. But here's the point that this morning, of this morning, when it comes to the danger of acceptance of worldly wisdom. Where it used to be that missions from the West 
would go into first cultures to try and colonize them with the gospel, right? We, we, we did that for ye- hundreds, like hundreds of years, really. And, you, and, and not, I'm not saying all that was good. We, we went into, sec- into cultures and we tried to put our Western values on them and that's been, there's been a lot of harm done with that. But there was, a lot of it, the intent was we wanted to bring Christ to those cultures. Things have shifted now, though. And so as the church, we're immersed in a post-Christian culture. We're in the third culture. And what the danger is, is that we are actually going to be colonized by the culture around us instead of the other way around. That we are getting sucked into, shaped, influenced by this culture instead of doing the opposite. Mark Sayers, he's an Australian pastor, cultural commentator, and he, he talks about how this coming renewal that God wants to do, and God does want to do a work of renewal. But he says this coming renewal must center on our hearts being changed by God. It must begin by replacing the pseudo-Christianity of lifestyle enhancement with the spirit-filled faith of biblical Christianity. It must offer the renewal of Christ-likeness to those being deformed by our culture in the deepest parts of their hearts. So when, when we speak of rejecting worldly wisdom of our culture, the question is, what are some of the deceptions that we see taking hold right now? In what ways have our, like our thinking, in what ways is our thinking being influenced by the secularism of the day? So one would be, culture of doubt. We, we've moved to a cultural worldview that is so far from faith in the West. A framework that works against believing. So it undermines everything. Religious faith, supernatural beliefs, they are, they're undermined even in the church. So a book like Strange Fire can be written for the church undermining all of the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's embraced by certain segments of the church. What it's doing is actually creating a culture of doubt. Secular pluralism is another one, a culture where no belief is held above others. And that, you know, this, this started a long time ago where we wanted this sort of secular pluralism so that everyone's beliefs could be accepted. We would be accepting everyone, you know, and it's kind of this kumbaya sort of, that's what we wanted. But it's now morphed into this widespread culture of people who live without God. And it creates lives of meaninglessness. People are living meaningless lives. Third way that we see this taking hold is the pursuit of the good life. The kingdom of God is built into the heart of every person. Do you know that? Every single person is born with the kingdom of God built into their heart. But it's been hijacked, if, without Christ, it's hijacked by the deception of this world and it results in misguided lives. So what do we pursue then? We pursue wealth. We pursue comfort. We pursue self-autonomy. We want to be in control. Those are held as the highest ideals. We look to ourselves to make decisions in our lives rather than seeking the Lord. But none of that ever provides meaning. None of it. 
All this is the wisdom of the world that is packaged and presented in incredibly attractive ways. But all of it leads us away from the way of Jesus. And Paul says, therefore, this worldly wisdom has to be rejected. The alternative is the second way that we live in God's power, and that is that we embrace the weakness of God. This is, so this is a bit of a play on words that I'm, I'm doing, but there is an inherent truth for us in these words. The power of God we're speaking of is rooted and sustained in the cross of Jesus. It's regarded, it says, by the, the cross is regarded by those who are perishing. That, that word there means like a hopeless destiny of death. Like that, people without Jesus are in deep trouble. Again, our secular pluralism tries to kind of, we, we almost get sucked into this thing of thinking that everyone's going to ultimately be okay. That everyone is inherently a good person and we're all going to somehow be okay at the end. People without Jesus, folks, are in deep, deep trouble. They're perishing. They have a hopeless destiny of death. That's Neighbors around us, people who don't know Jesus, that is where they're at. They really, 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 really need rescuing. But so when people are in that state, they see all of this as foolishness, as weakness. How could you ever believe that? That is weak. And yet it's this very cross that contains the power and the wisdom of God, Paul says. But it won't be seen as that by many, and we actually shouldn't expect it to be. Their eyes have a veil over them because it requires us to come in humility and weakness. It requires us to come in desperation to the Lord. This has always been the way of the cross. One of the hardest books I ever read, I would say, was a book called The Calvary Road by Roy Hessian. Um, because it doesn't mince words on the cross and what it calls us to. This is what he says there. If we are to come into this right relationship with Jesus, the first thing we must learn is that our wills must be broken to his will. To be broken is the beginning of revival. It is painful, it is humiliating, but it is the only way. For this reason, we are not likely to be broken except at the cross of Jesus. The willingness of Jesus to be broken for us is the all-compelling motive for our being broken too. From the earliest days of the church, after Jesus' resurrection, the idea of a crucified, poor Galilean as being Lord and God was mocked in the Roman Empire. It was seen as inherently weak. It was seen actually as complete insanity by the culture of the day. Historians have actually found Roman graffiti that was written on walls of this depiction of, of Jesus on a cross mocking him, mocking this idea that these people would follow this way. This was just like within 10, 20 years of Jesus' death. The belief that God would die in brokenness and weakness to save us and call us to follow the same way, that was in direct opposition to the Roman culture that celebrated wealth, achievement, 
and power as the highest ideals. That's, that's what we want to pursue, power. And this is, this, the point is that's still the foundation that drives worldly wisdom. That, that has not changed. It runs in direct opposition to the ways of God. Jesus crucified as weakness, and yet it is the power of God. Nothing else saves us. Nothing, nothing, nothing will ever, ever save you. That is seen as foolishness to the world. And yet all of this, it's the wisdom of God to bring healing and redemption in our lives. Jesus, who is without sin, took my sin, took your sin, the sin that we have. He took it on the cross and offers us his righteousness. That is extraordinary. And so it is coming to Jesus in humility, admitting our weakness, submitting our wills to him, being willing to actually be broken is where we find the true power for healing in our lives. It's the way of, that's the way of the cross. So if we're trying to like hold on to worldly affirmation because, and, and praise because we just, we want it and we're holding on to it at the expense of walking in weakness because we just like that sense of power, we'll end up actually being quite comfortable with pseudo-Christianity rather than Christ-likeness. There's a remarkable difference between pseudo-Christianity and Christ-likeness. The way of Jesus is embracing weakness, and it leads us to the third way that we live in God's power. That is that to make yourself nothing. So in verse 26 to 31, Paul, he's, he's contrasting what this world will affirm and glory with God's ways. The celebration of power and prestige or the choice to follow the ways of Jesus that are just totally the opposite. Okay, so this is not, like when we say make yourself nothing, this is not about self-condemnation. It's about finding our worth in who the Father says we are. And we find that in Jesus. And the choice to follow Jesus is a path that will be seen by, as weak and despised by those who embrace the values and the pursuit of this culture. They will not understand the pursuit of Jesus. It's a choice to make nothing of ourselves and everything of Jesus. When I, when I made the decision, sorry, not when I, when we, when Jess and I obeyed what God was speaking to us to, for me to leave the business world, people did not understand what I was doing. They did not get it. There's still a couple of them that probably think I'm nuts. Because, and I don't expect them to get it, actually. It's not, I don't expect those people to actually understand. We shouldn't expect them to get it. It doesn't, they need Jesus. What Paul was addressing is the same temptation that we face. The inclination to get caught up in the culture around us, accepting the values and living for this culture rather than living for the kingdom of God. So be, being immersed in the constant pressure 
to boast in our own ingenuity, our own intelligence, our own abilities. Seeking the praise of others because it feeds our sense of worth and identity. That is what our culture is just hyper-focused and obsessed with. We love, love, love the affirmation of others and the praise of others. And we, like it's, it's this obsessiveness in our culture that permeates everywhere. So the point of that is worldly wisdom is not insignificant. Paul, for Paul, he was writing in verse 17, he's worried that it actually can empty the cross of Christ of its power because it's really, really impactful in the lives of people. Societal norms that are accepted as wisdom and embraced. Paul's saying, I know the deception of this. He's saying, church in Corinth, I see the deception of this. Wake up and see what's happening. Don't get duped by the culture around you. So we can give lip service to the cross of Jesus, but it actually hardly has any discernible impact in our lives. Why? Because we're living for the values of this world. That is the deception. That is the temptation that Paul's saying, beware of that. So this is a serious threat to our lives. This is not some like, way out there thought. If we embrace the ways of this culture, tolerance, wealth, comfort, it will do great damage to our spiritual health. It can get us consumed by those things. So we actually, we need to stop worrying about trying to gain favor with the world because it only leads to compromise. We need to stop seeking the praise of others. It's futile. It doesn't go anywhere. This is about Jesus. It's about trusting his power for our lives. The end of 1 Corinthians 3, interestingly enough, Paul circles back to this issue of wisdom. He comes back to it again. And what the world claims and what God says and he, and he ties it to the Corinthians' individualism that's creating division in them. It's profound truth for our culture in these words. Yeah, okay, good, they're there. Hopefully you can read those. The foolishness of worldly wisdom because ultimately it rejects the need for Jesus. Paul's saying beware of that. Beware of anything that will take you down a path where you begin to see that you need Jesus less and less. Go down paths that show you that you need Jesus more and more and more and more and more and more. Just go down that path. Go down the path that will take you into relationship with Jesus. Don't go down the path that begins to, you, re, you begin to rely on your own ingenuity, your own intelligence, your own abilities. Seek the affirmation of others and it begins to feed your identity. Pulsing Beware of that. Because the reality is that God reveals the schemes and the deception of this supposed wisdom. It says it right there. The warning not to boast in men. I, I've kind of said this already this morning, but our culture has a hyper focus on the wisdom and the opinion of others. The, the celebrity culture where we 
We spend hours just listening to a flood of human opinions. Like we will spend hours in, on social media, podcasts, various forms of entertainment, just listening to a flood of opinions of other people. When really what we need is the wisdom of God that is found in the word of God. We take little, we bite off little morsels of the word and then we go and we spend hours listening to the wisdom of others. And then we wonder why we're struggling with, not, with meaning in our lives. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says that Christ Jesus became our wisdom from God. That the Greek there carries the meaning. True wisdom is this. So Paul's saying, you want to find wisdom? This is where it is. It's in the righteousness of Jesus. It's about holiness. It's about Jesus giving his righteousness to us, us resting in the righteousness of Jesus, not ours, his. And, and like I said last week, holiness is actually about wholeness. Holiness is about pursuing wholeness in our lives, which is found as we abide in Jesus. It's also found in sanctification. You know, if, if I would ask, like, people say, well, that's a really complicated word. Like, what does sanctification mean? Probably a lot of you kids might be like, what's he talking about, sanctification? Like, that's a big, big word. You know what sanctification can be boiled down to on one level? The pursuit of God. It's the pursuit of God. It's the pursuit of becoming more like Jesus. If you're being sanctified, you're becoming more like Jesus. It's the pursuit of that. And then Redemption. Again, these are big words, but you know, all that means is seeing and embracing our need for rescue. I need to be rescued. I can't do it on my own. I can never ever do enough to rescue myself. I really actually need Jesus, always. This is why following the way of Jesus is so amazing and lovely, because it is the only way. To live in God's power, we reject the wisdom of the world. We embrace the weakness of God and we make ourselves nothing. We're called to live in this true wisdom that Paul speaks about. We're, we're called to live in this continually. So we find our identity, we find our worth in Jesus, not in what we accomplish, not in what we do or don't do, not in what others think about us. We find our identity in his righteousness, in the pursuit of God, in seeing and embracing our need for Jesus. That is true wisdom. And that, that, that can take you years to just unpack the realities of that. Like those things, those three things right there, will, you can go for years into the depths of who Jesus is, and he continually reveals himself to you more and more and more. But it's so needed for us to be reminded. We need to be reminded of the promise that God is always committed to bringing his renewal on this earth. He is. God is, he is creating a new heavens and a new earth. His presence is increasing and he is looking for people who are saying, I long for more of the presence of God in my life. He's saying, will you seek me? If you seek me, you will find me. 
I am bringing, I am, God is always, always, always about bringing his presence on this earth and into us. Always. So it's both a future promise, but it's a present reality that we can experience. But the work of renewal, so when we talk about big picture renewal, and if people want to talk about, you know where it begins? Do you know where it begins? Begins in individual people. We actually can't go around saying, I want renewal to happen. I'm waiting. God's going to bring revival. Amen, amen, amen. And we just, how is renewal in your life? How is renewal here? That's where it starts. Revival breaks out when a whole bunch of people are experiencing renewal here. That's actually what revival is. So to sing and praise and shout and scream for revival, it's great. But if we're not willing to actually seek renewal, we need renewal. So I want to I end this morning. We've got a few minutes here. I want to end. I want to leave you with a question in light of these verses. To ponder, to put before the Lord. To ask the Lord to speak to us. To hear the voice of Jesus. Again, he doesn't come in condemnation. The Holy Spirit does convict. But he does it because he loves to give more of his presence to us. So here's the question. Where have I ordered my life according to the wisdom of this culture? Where is God inviting me to change and live submitted to the way of Jesus? Let's, let's take a few minutes. Roger, you can come up and, and you can, uh, if you just want to kind of lightly play. And uh, let's... Let's allow the Lord to speak to our hearts and then we'll, then we'll enter into worship.